0: episode for you on the you got it transfiguration this time i'm talking with katie copeland and gretchen ronovic of freely given a podcast of the wonderful 1517 network this is the first of two episodes with them the other will be coming soon and if you enjoy it please subscribe to freely Given. Katie and Gretchen reflect and explore widely what the freedom of a Christian means in the everyday vocations of our lives, and I always feel heartened and encouraged after I listen. So enjoy this conversation on the Transfiguration and, oh yeah, just in case you forgot, I'm running a Kickstarter! If you're interested in my book, Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration, just follow the link in the show notes or Google Kickstarter Transfiguration Sarah Henlicky Wilson and it'll pop right up. Actually, you can even leave out the Sarah and the Wilson is enough to get you there. The Kickstarter is the only way to get the book right now, so don't miss your chance. And now here comes my interview with Freely Given, part one. Hey there,
1: welcome to the Freely Given podcast. Our purpose is to increase faith and freedom rather than guilt and slavery and today i am extra excited because we have one of the authors that we um did one of our bonus episodes on with us today a tumbling down a tumbling down my favorite fiction from last year that i read um so but she's going to talk about something totally different today so sarah if you could introduce yourself that would be fantastic
0: Sure. Thank you, Katie and Gretchen, for having me on. My name is Sarah Henlicky Wilson. And yes, I wrote a novel about a Lutheran pastor's family called A Tumbling Down. And let me just say it was the thrill of my life to hear the two of you talking about it and about <laughs> it for an hour and that you actually got it. That was also like an extra bonus. <laughs> um but I am here I well I am a pastor at Tokyo Lutheran Church yes the one in Japan people are always like what Tokyo yeah that one (laughs) my husband and I are missionaries in Japan we've been there a little over five years now and I serve an English language worship group within Tokyo Lutheran Church which as you might imagine is mostly Japanese people Um, Anyway, I'm also a theologian and I've done some teaching, worked in ecumenism and various things, but I also write lots of other books besides just novels about Lutheran pastor's family. And anyway, we're here today because I reached out to you about one I'm working on right now called Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration, and that is the transfiguration of Jesus, not anyone else.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. (laughs) I have to say yours was the only fiction book I actually finished last year. I started a bunch. I didn't finish, so
0: and it's not short, so that's really saying something, folks. I know. Listen to Gretchen.
2: It was it was a little traumatizing, a little bit, but but I we made it. I
0: called you out on that because I know if you
1: didn't see
2: what was happening coming. (laughs) in. I know. You gave us major Gretchen. See it. I knew it was coming and that's why I wanted to stop. That's yeah. why I'm just like. But then I'm just like, I'm like OK, we'll push through. We'll get done. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I no, it was good, though. I'm glad that. I did. Don't. I'm glad I did. All right. So we were excited that you wanted to talk about the transfiguration because that's not an area that I feel very well versed in in understanding. You know how there's passages in the Bible that you're like, I know there's more to this yeah that i'm not yeah. saying. yeah and you and know
1: when like <laughs> old testament figures show up with jesus that's probably a big deal <laughs> probably yeah,
2: there, has, there has to be some meaning behind this that yeah. i'm not quite catching which mm-hmm. is probably a little bit how peter felt like let's put up some tents and dig in here yeah like <laughs> <we'll have to laughs> do let's do this thing. something something's happening mm-hmm. and so Yeah,
0: Yeah. totally. Well, actually, I mean, it's sort of for similar reasons that I ended up working on this book because um, I had not been a parish pastor for a long time when I came to Japan. And so like I remember the first year that transfiguration came around, which we have every year in our church calendar, I was like, okay, transfiguration. So I wrote a sermon. And the second year I was like, "Um, okay, transfiguration. And then the third year I was like, I have nothing left to say. There's got to be more to it than this. Um, So then I like a, a good seminary trained person, I went to the Greek. And I found that in Luke's version of the transfiguration. He's the only one who tells what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about. And the word, which is usually not translated this way into English, is Exodus. They were prepa- They were talking about Jesus' Exodus. And I was like, whoa, okay, something a lot bigger is going on here than I ever realized. If Jesus is talking about his Exodus that is about to come. And then after that, I was starting to think, like, well, if if there's this just in this much this one word exodus i'm beginning to see new things there has to be tons more and i bet other people whether they are preachers or lay people are like thinking there's got to be more going on and they want to know more and that is basically where the book came from
1: yeah and it's not you didn't title it seven ways to transfigure yourself though
0: (laughs) no i did not (laughs) yes we we should after we talk about jesus transfiguration we we can talk about what it has to do with us because maybe that was a a a less pure motive on my part or maybe it was the purest of them all because i was looking at other books on the transfiguration and a lot of them are very eager to jump right to what they call our transfiguration and you you know lutherans tend to break out in hives when something about jesus is immediately recruited for our own spiritual self-improvement
2: yeah for sure yeah, that is something I'm working through right now with the patience book. If I'm wanting to talk about the patience of God and everyone, I think that even my own mind goes straight to, okay, but that, how does that make us patient? Yeah. and yeah. We, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, We want to get there because scripture is for us, right? G- just like Jesus is for us. But if we don't understand what's actually going on, especially in narrative, we're going to apply it incorrectly to our yeah. life.
0: So, well, the thing is we don't just want to receive, right? We want to receive and then apply and then not need to receive anymore. And I think yes. that's kind of like I think that's why spiritual people still struggle spiritually cuz like the better you get in a way the worse you get because you're more and more tempted to say like, "Well, I got it now. I don't need yes. God anymore cuz yep. and God is so proud of me that I can do it without his help." I, I don't need just- I don't have to read Genesis anymore because that's the only book I
1: get through when I start reading the Bible through I year <laughs> the Bible plans. So <laughs> just skip right over it. Yeah. I'm kidding, guys. That's, that's, I know, I know.
2: I like you you sent along some some notes and questions that you were working through when um when writing this book. And I love I love that they're just so there's so much curiosity to it. And and I love that like as a seminary trained person to just say, you know, approach a scripture and say, I don't know what this is about. Let's just start asking all the questions. Um and so yeah, I've heard so many theories though. Like I've heard theories that like, um. I think I don't know if probably one of the best places or worst (laughs) places for for um seeing biblical theories. I was reading a thread on Twitter. A ripe place. Ripe place. (laughs) Horrible. Horrible place to find stuff. Um. Someone was, was theorizing that it was kind of almost like, like a time thing, like Jesus transcends time. And was he meeting with Moses up on the mountain and Elijah up on the mountain? And was this mountain just kind of like when they were meeting with God, were they meeting with Jesus? Like that type of I've read something
0: thing. similar to that. Yeah. With the time. So it's like a time travel
2: theory. Like yes. a time travel yes. theory. Like <laughs> I, just, I was just like oh i don't know <laughs> i don't i don't know what's going on i mean like, i, I do is... watch
1: a lot of superhero stuff i have
2: three boys but <laughs> was it a doctor who moment yeah like we, you know anyway
0: <laughs> well, well i hate to disappoint everybody <laughs> but there will not be any time travel <laughs> theories oh, in my book. Okay. i'm sorry i would really like to apply that Seuss. to my daily living oh, <laughs> yes Okay. Also, I, bet- I should say, here's one question I cannot answer: Is how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? As in, were they wearing name tags, or did oh. Moses have the little horns like in Jerome's <laughs> mistranslation? Um, I don't know. Uh, that that is one thing they just knew it was Moses and Elijah. I think when you meet Moses and Elijah, you just know it's Moses and Elijah. They don't need any more. Yeah. You know. Maybe
1: they just introduced themselves. Hey, I'm Moses. Because could be. they're popular, right? Like,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe
2: maybe when Jesus was talking to them, he referred to them. Or I don't know. Yeah. Like... Yeah.
0: Like, hey, Moses. Hey, Elijah. You know, or or maybe Moses had his two tablets and Elijah, like he rescued them from wherever the Ark got lost. Right. And then Elijah has his fiery chariots that he went up to heaven with. I don't know. I don't yeah. think that's actually by any means what the evangelists are interested in when, no. when they introduce Moses and Elijah.
1: So the first question you have for us is why are Moses and Elijah the two Old Testament figures who appear with Jesus? And you also say, spoiler alert, not because (laughs) you represent the law and the prophets, because that is exactly where I would have gone to.
0: Yeah, that's probably what you've heard most often in sermons is that they represent the law and the prophets. And, you know, in a certain respect, it's a logical inference because like Moses is the one on Mount Sinai who gets the law and delivers it. And Elijah is obviously a prophet, but that is probably now like a more of a Christian, a later Christian inference about the two of them. It's probably not what people at the time would have thought. And, um, So it's also worth knowing that Moses was considered as the supreme prophet, not as the supreme lawgiver, per se. Again, that's more of a Christian way of looking at him. But at the end of Deuteronomy, um, there's a prophecy that comes through Moses where he says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, which Christians have always applied to Jesus. So actually, Moses probably is the better qualifier as the representative of the prophets than Elijah. And then Elijah, like in the stories about him, he's relatively rarely called a prophet there are a lot of other names applied to him like man of god or ahab calls him troubler of israel i kind of like that one um but often it's elijah confronting like cohorts of prophets like you know career prophets who work for bad kings and tell them what they want to hear and there's no book Named Elijah, <laughs> like Elijah appears as a figure in the histories, yeah. but usually yeah. when we talk about the prophets, we mean the ones who actually have books named like for them,
2: Isaiah or Jeremiah. Yeah, or exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's not it's not wildly wrong or, or disrespectful or anything, but that's probably not what what the original evangelists and and reporting the story were going for, or or why God chose Moses and Elijah out of those. Yeah. Is that what is that what you'd say you've usually heard when you've heard the transfiguration preached?
2: wow uh, I don't even know if I, I even got that far it's, <laughs> okay
0: yeah. it's really hard for me to even think back
1: and say man that was a humdinger of a transfiguration <laughs>
2: right like I've I, maybe heard one or two sermons on the transfiguration. and I'm sure I've heard them, I'm sure I
0: have right like yeah
2: I, but
0: Well, I should say you've probably heard a lot more than you realize, because it is actually thanks to Lutherans that we observe the transfiguration every year, which I didn't know until I started on this project. So I'll get back to Moses and Elijah, but I think this is kind of a cool bit of liturgical history. Yeah. So it turns out the transfiguration started being observed annually in like the churches of of, um, uh, Palestine, Jerusalem, Egypt, like the really ancient Middle Eastern ones by like the fifth century, probably. And it spread throughout what became Orthodox Christianity. And, And that was always observed on August 6th. So it was like a fixed date the way Christmas is a fixed date. Okay. And then, and then it, unfortunately the way it came into the Western church, like the Latin Roman church is because in the 1300s, um, a certain Pope was really happy at a crusader victory over Turks. So he said, in Thanksgiving to God for defeating the Turks at Belgrade, we are going to start observing the transfiguration every year also on August 6th. So, um, mm. anyway, but that was only, you know, it was fairly. I mean, not long before the reformation. Okay. And so, like at the time of the Reformation, of course, they were rethinking a lot of things. And basically, uh, it wasn't Luther himself, but two two reformers close to him, Bugenhagen and Dietrich, who basically said, "Well, it's kind of weird to have transfiguration in August and like not connected to the like life cycle of Jesus part of the church year." So they decided to start observing it every year on the last Sunday of Epiphany, and so it kind of made a bookend. Like the first Sunday of Epiphany, which is coming up as we record this, is the baptism of jesus and then the last sunday of epiphany is the transfiguration of jesus and then three days after transfiguration is ash wednesday and lent begins so that is now in most church calendars um, some churches also observe august sixth as well so like anglicans and catholics have transfiguration twice in the same year um but like anyone who follows like their revised common lectionary will be getting transfiguration every year and that is because of lutherans
1: hmm. all right yeah. I know it's definitely in the liturgical year. <laughs> yeah. So. I never
2: put the sequence Mm-mm. in there together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that but is con- super interesting to learn how we get our liturgies, right? And to know why it is where it is in the calendar, if nothing else. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I so,
0: a cool thing about the baptism and transfiguration is they're the two times God the Father speaks from heaven to Jesus directly. So that's another reason they're like bookends to the uh-huh. Epiphany season. And then at the, after the transfiguration, it says Jesus sets his face to go toward Jerusalem. So and that's the first time he talks about the cross is right before the transfiguration. So even like in the this like the the biography of jesus in the gospels there's a definite connection between talking about the cross heading to to jerusalem and getting transfigured so the timing i think the timing before lent begins is absolutely perfect
1: yeah i was just going to ask about that like is that odd that it's right before lent but nope apparently not that's why that makes sense
2: Mm -hmm. That makes sense
0: okay but you're dying to know why moses and elijah right
2: why were they there yeah (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, okay. There's two things, just for starters, that Moses and Elijah have in common, which is both of them go up a mountain and a very significant mountain. They are the only two people in all of scripture who climb Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. So Mm -hmm. in the Exodus story, Moses is the one who makes it all the way to the top to where God is, but he's the only one. There's a possibility Joshua goes some of the way with him, but Moses definitely makes it to the top. And Elijah. Makes it all the way to the top. It's called Mount Horeb in in the King's stories, but it's the same. It means the same thing as as Mount Sinai. And he goes alone. That's when he's running away from Ahab and Jezebel, and is very grumpy and is like, you know, Lord, you've abandoned me. And then there's like, you know, the the wind and the the thunder, but God is only present in the still small voice. So the, a big focus of the Transfiguration is that they ascend a mountain together. Now that is definitely not Mount Sinai because that's really far from where they were, but <laughs> but it was some mountain. There have been attempts to identify it. The popular theory is it's Mount Tabor, which is near Nazareth. Um, But anyway, so Moses and Elijah at least have that in common. They both go up to the mountain to meet with God. And, you know, when Jesus gets up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks to him again from the cloud. So that's probably one big reason. And another big reason that the two uh, Moses and Elijah have in common is that they both exit life in a weird way, (laughs) a non-conventional way. So Moses actually actually um is alone on a mountain not not the same one but he's on a mountain and he's like looking down over the promised land but you remember moses never gets into the promised land he only looks at it and then the hebrew kind of makes it sound like god sort of came down and took the breath out of him and then buried him directly so there's like no shrine or tomb of moses or anything he's just gone um, which is interesting because um, in Christian, early Christian developments, there was never any like shrine around where Jesus was buried. Like as soon as he was raised from the dead, people lost all interest in what where he was buried. Uh, identifying his sepulcher was a much later development, which is actually one of the the pieces of like evidence for the likeliness of the resurrection that normally famous people when they die there's a a very they know exactly where they died and know where know where they're buried but But interestingly Moses and Jesus don't have that both
1: yeah even in that like Moses's time they knew where they buried their people right like they oh yeah paid attention because they would go back there or sometimes they carry the bones with
0: them right so right right Yeah, exactly. The Israelites were carrying Joseph's bones through the wilderness to take him and bury him in the promised land. It's very odd that such
1: a main figure would not have a known death or burial. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And then Elijah, as I mentioned before, you know, he gets the fiery chariots and like exits direct to heaven, doesn't have to die. Now Jesus clearly dies, but he does ascend into heaven. And so again, there's like kind of like Moses and Elijah are the two two sides of Jesus' own exit from the earth, the, the um, in a sense, burial directly by God and at God's command, but without leaving a tomb behind. And then Elijah represents more like the ascend- direct ascension into heaven that Jesus does after he rises from the dead.
2: Oh interesting. Yeah. So um what about the other people on the mountaintop? Like why like I know that Peter, James, and John were kind of I've always just heard them referred to as like the inner circle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You the know, VIPs. and so <laughs> the the VIPs. The VIP disciples um <laughs> that were up at the mountaintop. What what's the significance of that? Have you found? that?
0: Yeah. You know, I didn't really like clue in until I was looking at this that, of course, Peter does have a brother. We all know it's Andrew. And I was like, gosh, why does Andrew always get left out? You know, was he really annoyed that like Peter would go sneak off with two other brothers and leave Andrew behind? Um, Also, it's really funny. It's only in Mark's gospel, but uh, in in Mark, Jesus gives James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm kind of like, I wonder what that's all about. I wonder if they quarreled a lot or there was like super intense sibling rivalry or it might be later on uh james and john like try to call down the fire on Mm -hmm. the samaritans that's in luke not in mark but (laughs) i kind of wonder if like they had a repute i think they might have been the original hellfire and damnation preachers Mm -hmm. and um so like maybe maybe they're chosen because they need to like have a different vision of what what this whole ministry thing is about jesus had to keep them real close Mm Yeah. (laughs) Keep an eye on these two (laughs) troublemakers. (laughs) Oh, and of course, they're also the ones who come up with the idea that they can sit at Jesus left and right hand in his Uh glory. And like, I can totally imagine as brothers, they're like, they finally figured out a way to split things evenly between them. Like you get his left, (laughs) I get his right. And like, it doesn't matter that the other 10 disciples are like somewhere farther down the table, you know, like finally they've solved their sibling problem. And they're like, Jesus, aren't you proud of us? He's like, No, you missed the point again. (laughs) We have our spots picked out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, but of course, Peter is by far the most. Is significant and important of the disciples, and um, this is where it really helps. Uh, I think, especially in the Gospels, though this applies to any kind of narrative in the Bible. Which is seeing the sequence that things happen in really tells you what it's all about. So, I mean, one of the, I mean, there, there's no way around it, really. But the way we hear Scripture and preaching in the church it tends to be like each episode is contained in itself. But unless you kind of see how they all progress over time, you sort of lose lose sight of the larger plot. So what's really important is that right before the transfiguration is the first time I'm going from Mark, which most scholars agree is, is probably the first of the gospels to be written down, even though it's not the first, you know, you come across in the new testaments. Um, So right before the transfiguration is the first time Jesus tells his disciples, well, it starts with him saying, who do people say that I am? And they have a whole bunch of theories, including, interestingly, one of them is this theory that Jesus is Elijah. So there's also another kind of Elijah thread going on there. And Peter correctly says, you are the Christ. And Jesus is like, way to go, Peter. You got it. That's correct. And then as soon as they've correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, then Jesus goes on to modify their understanding understanding of the Christ which would have probably been a you know triumphant and more political one to say well but turns out to be the Christ means to suffer and be killed and of course, on the third day, rise again. They clearly never get the rise again part. That's <laughs> just beyond them. But Peter is very upset by the suffering and dying part. And he takes Jesus aside and says, no, no, let's not have any more of this defeatist talk. And you'll remember, Jesus reacts very strongly and says, get behind me, Satan, which is just a devastating thing to say that that Peter's error is so grave. It like puts him in the company of the ultimate enemy. So it's in this whole framework of the first time they've ever heard anything about the cross and suffering and death that, Immediately after that, Jesus takes Peter, along with James and John, up to the mountain and gives them like an almost opposite view this, you know, alteration of his clothing and he's dazzling white and these great figures of the Old Testament come to him and then God speaks to him from the cloud. So I think we have to, to, to get what's going on with the transfiguration and especially Peter's role is you have to see this, this tight connection between correctly identifying the Christ, misunderstanding the point of being the Christ, and then seeing the transfiguration immediately afterwards.
1: Sorry, I'm making notes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um
2: so yeah, I I love the sequence of things. I'm kind of a nerd about timelines, and so I I love that, but um the three booths that Peter brings up. Um or the three tents or the, um which makes me tie back to the feast of booths maybe a little bit. I don't know, but um, that's where my brain goes, which is again, some, not a, not a feast that I'm super familiar with. And so the significance of, but tell us a little bit about why, why Peter gets that very wrong.
0: I will, but at first I'm going to ask you again if you have any memory of what you were usually told about why it's such a mistake. Like I usually hear, like Peter's an idiot. <laughs> but do you hear oh, yeah. like any more specific <laughs>
2: criticism? That's a good answer. In most so, most things, <laughs> so
0: the only
1: context I have is that Jesus's kingdom wasn't on earth, right? So that's why the idea of building like um a house for him would be foolish.
2: Or the idea that um, Peter wanted the ma- wanted the mountaintop experience to, to stay.
1: Yeah, yes.
2: You know, and, and he didn't want to go back down to the valley. Yeah. Like mm. you kind of like it, like a end of camp thing. Exactly. The- <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Type of-
0: as far as I can tell, in American Lutheranism, the chief purpose of the transfiguration is to help campers on the last night cope with the fact that it's about to end. <laughs> well, right. It's an important spot because that uh, camp is a, it's a high. Like, yeah, right, right, right. Them. No, I think that's I think that's a completely legitimate derivation of the whole story. I don't think that's the core of the story. Like, sorry, Peter, James, John, camp is over. You got to go hang out with the other nine losers again. <laughs> well, but Gretchen, I think your instincts are completely right on thinking of the Feast of Booths, which is something that I would say most Christians today don't even realize is there. You know, kind of Passover has become yeah. our like one Jewish or ancient Israelite feast that we interpret everything about Jesus through but um this is this is another one of those things that was always in the back of my head with the story is like but why booths that's like so specific and so weird Uh in a way and like if it was really about like capturing the glory forever you'd think he'd say like let me build you a temple or a palace Mm -hmm. but a booth by i mean even in english you can hear it is a temporary fragile structure it's not something that you'd want to camp out in long term at all so I think this actually goes exactly back to the conversation that Peter and Jesus have about what it means to be the Christ. And so what Jesus is saying by, you know, revealing that he is going to suffer and die and, you know, it's coming up as we know to the Passover feast and the sacrifice of the lambs and their blood sparing the Israelites. Jesus is saying, basically, Peter, we are headed into Passover and the role of the Christ is to be the Passover lamb. And of course, Peter does not like that. So I think what we're getting from Peter's suggestion is that when he sees the transfigured Christ, and then he sees Elijah, who is also understood as being the one who ushers in the end times, that's what uh, people of his time would have expected. And of course, Moses, um, remarkable Moses, the greatest figure of, of ancient Israel. I think Peter was thinking, oh, we can skip Passover. We can go right to the Feast of Booths. And again, at that time, the Feast of Booths was the final feast of their church year, quote unquote, syna- I don't know if it's even synagogue year, pilgrimage festival year. It's the third of the three big pilgrimage festivals to Jerusalem. And it had taken on this sense of the final gathering. So it's the last harvest festival. Everything has been gathered in. Now you can relax and celebrate. And um, it, it's sort of an icon of you know, what we would call like the kingdom of heaven or the everlasting banquet of the lamb um that's very much feeding into these christian images so i think peter's basically saying hey jesus let's skip passover and go right to sukkot i'll build you your booth just like we always do and we're done we've accomplished it everything is over makes and sense. Pe- yes. yeah and then peter jesus has to say i'm sorry you don't get to sukkot until you first go through passover there are three pilgrimage festivals you don't get to skip the first two and do you know what the second one is by chance between passover don't and sukkot actually. Pentecost okay yes it's Uh, often called the festival of harvest or the festival of weeks Uh, again this is where translations are accurate but misleading the festival of weeks is Pentecost so yes after Passover there's Pentecost and then Sukkot refers to the end times
2: okay that is fascinating Uh that is super fascinating
0: And I think it gives Peter a lot more credibility. Like he's not just an idiot. Like there's there's, what I would have said Like, Mm -hmm. hey, this is great. We get to skip all that this year. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: We'll go right to rest and celebration. That
2: sounds great. Let's do that. That's so relatable Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. It's so relatable. But... (laughs)
1: the whole Passover and Jesus's sacrifice is kind of integral to the Christian faith. So I can see why it's um, pretty offensive for Peter to just want to skip over all of that.
0: Yeah.
2: Do we, let's wrap up the first one real quick. Okay. If we can. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Right here, right now. Why not? Okay. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are going to wrap up this episode real quick, but we're going to continue this fascinating conversation on the Transfiguration and its connection to um, the feasts and and other Old Testament things and what that what all of this means. Um, I'm loving this conversation. Okay. thanks for listening. We are a podcast of 1517 15:17 exists to declare and defend the good news that we are forgiven and free on account of Christ alone. In Christ you are forgiven. Live free as you grow in the grace and knowledge of his love.